ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and uh, welcome to today's release of our new report entitled Building an Agile Force, the Imperative for Speed and Adaptation in the U.S. Aerospace Industrial Base. Now, as many of you are aware, the U.S. Air Force is the only service that can meet our nation's adversaries with mass, speed, agility, and survivability on near immediate timelines. And that was highlighted in its 2022 posture statement. And yet at the same time, we've got an Air Force that's too old, too small, and too fragile for what the nation expects of it. The demand signal of multiple concurrent worldwide responsibilities is really straining our Air Force today. So the Air Force must do more than just replace its legacy fleet. It can't just buy more of the same old designs and it can't take decades to field the next generation. That'll simply be too late. You've heard General Brown's mantra of accelerate change or lose. We need to be able to adapt at speed because time is the new offset and adaptation is the new advantage. The Air Force needs to transform its force design into one that provides this new offset advantage. So Mitchell Institute's latest report examines just how the Air Force can rejuvenate the aerospace industry to develop and deliver a force that can really outpace peer adversaries. U.S. aerospace companies contain some of the world's greatest engineering talent, engineering and manufacturing skill. To field advanced capabilities at the speeds warfighters need, the defense industry has to expand, however, and business models need to shift away from sustaining the past and toward developing the future. Given the urgent need for the Air Force to recapitalize, time's no longer a luxury. It's the challenge. The Air Force doesn't have to wait on acquisition reforms or other policies to make this happen. It can change its procurement paradigms to accelerate its own transformation and at the same time, rejuvenate the aerospace industry. Now to explain the analysis and the conclusions, we have with us Heather Penny, senior resident fellow here at the Mitchell Institute and co-author of the report. And we're also really fortunate to be joined by Tim Grayson, director of the Strategic Technology Office at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So welcome to both of you and thanks for joining us. And now let's begin with a summary of the project. And as a note to our audience, feel free to go ahead and raise your hand using the function on the app or submit questions in the Q&A window. And we'll get back to those in the second half of the hour. But right now, over to you, Heather. Thank you. So we embarked on the study as a result of the work that we've done with DARPA on future warfare peer competition, and force structure, all at a time when the Air Force, as General Deptula noted, is the smallest and oldest that it's ever been. The mismatch between the force we have, the force we need, and the industrial base that both rely upon is one that must be reconciled if we are to compete, deter, and win in any peer conflict. We took a historical approach to exploring this problem, its causes and contributing factors, and to identify high potential solutions. Next. Slide. What we found was that the structure and business models of today's aerospace defense industrial base is not configured to invent, develop, or deliver the force the future needs, and certainly not at the pace that a technologically peer adversary will demand. This is not the fault of the defense industry. As a monopsony system, defense companies have only one customer, the Department of Defense. They have to optimize their corporations to the Defense Department's buying behavior. Slide. Fighter development times have nearly tripled and competitions have decreased. This graph is representative of that challenge that we face. On the y-axis, we have years from contract award to IOC. Note that this does not include any pre-award development or prototype. The aircraft are listed chronologically by contract award. The average contract time to field for these fighters is five years. The F-15, arguably the most sophisticated fighter of its time, was a paper contract. There was no experimental prototype. 
that it only took seven years to field is a testament to the experience and expertise of McDonald's design team. Design team experience is crucial to enabling rapid problem solving. Furthermore, the F-15 was a single mission aircraft. Remember, not a pound for air to ground. And this enabled engineers to make smart design trade-off choices. The F-106 is another aircraft of interest, but it stands out for its nine-year developmental period in a time frame where the Century Series were fielding between four and five years. What was going on here was, frankly, technological overreach. Convair had to solve significant aerodynamic problems like transonic drag at the same time that it was solving advanced technological requirements. As a supersonic interceptor, the F-106 was remotely flown via a data link from a ground station SAGE computer until the radar on the F-106 could pick up and complete the target within 10 miles of the intercept. The F-106 actually began life as the F-102, but the program had so many issues that the Air Force fielded a minimally viable aircraft, the F-102, as an interim interceptor, interceptor as it continued to develop the F-106. However, by the time the F-106 became operational in 1959, the service had already filled those capability gaps with the F-101 and the Bomark missile system. Importantly, the F-106 was already overcome by events as the competition had shifted from nuclear bombers to ICBMs. The lesson here is clear. Longer developmental timeframes risk irrelevance. We can contrast this with the F-117. The icon for the second offset, the stealth aircraft employed precision weapons and it only took five years to field. This, this was a result of a robust experimental prototyping system, but also because of the experience of the engineers, the clear design focus of the program and the reuse of existing and common parts. What's notable here on this graph is the nearly tripling of developmental timeframes for recent aircraft. 14 years for the F-22, 15 years for the F-35, and both of these programs had pre-contract prototypes. While we could consider all of the factors that we had just discussed, another point stands out, that by the 1990s, we are only procuring one aircraft per decade. And if you consider the Strike Eagle not as a new start, after all, it was building off an existing airframe, the 1980s skipped a new design. The fourth generation legacy fighters were all developed in the early 1970s. Nearly 15 years pass before the F-22 is put on contract in 1991, and then a decade before the Joint Strike Fighter. The F-35 award was, uh, contract was awarded in 2001. So it's already been 20 years with no new fighter competition, and it may be another 10 years before NGAT is awarded. So we could go nearly 30 years without any new design competition or experience for industry engineers. The issues that trouble Air Force acquisition, high unit costs, aggressive award protests, cost overruns, extended developmental cycles, growing sustainment costs, these are all the result of Air Force buying behavior. Slide. So offset strategies seek to identify and exploit attributes of a unique advantage against an adversary. Instead of competing tit for tat, an offset will shift the competition to an area of adversary weakness. For example, the first offset, the new look force, focused on nuclear weapons as a means to deter, compete, and win against the Soviet Union. That's why we've got a Nike missile there. We did not believe that the Soviets could match our nuclear capabilities. When they did, much to our surprise, it upset our strategy and returned it to a symmetric competition, counting missiles, counting bombers. Ironically, Vietnam was what led to the second offset. Fighting against Soviet equipment and tactics in that proxy conflict gave us insights into our shortfalls. With a smaller force, the Soviets had industrial mass on their side, we had to seek a means to make our force more effective. And the answer was in advanced capabilities. Stealth, precision weapons, navigation and timing, and advanced sensing and processing were true force multipliers. This advantage was enduring not only because of the quality and innovation of US technology, but also because of the structure of the Soviet industrial base. The communist system of centralized industrial planning, their scale, 
and the poor education and skill of their workforce could not pivot to compete technologically against the US. Desert Storm proved the hypothesis of the second offset against one of the most sophisticated Iraqi air defense systems and the second largest standing army in the world, smaller could indeed be better. But we've become a victim of our own success. The second offset was intended to compensate for a smaller force, not justify cutting it. But after the fall of Soviet Union, this is exactly what happened. Defense leaders believed that by pursuing ever more advanced and sophisticated capabilities, they could achieve cost savings by cutting force structure. This perversion of offset strategy has persisted ever since, getting better in order to get smaller. But this dynamic has created its own problem where the increased sophistication of individual weapon systems drives up unit costs, which then means that less can be procured. It's a vicious cycle. For too long, defense leadership has focused on using advanced capabilities as a means to cut force structure. This approach has neglected the other attributes available to achieve a strategic offset. And this approach will not be able to deliver the force design of the future that we need to be to compete against a peer adversary. While the quality, the capabilities of the force will still matter against a technologically advanced adversary, Air Force leaders must consider how to deliberately dial up the other attributes of quantity, diversity, and complexity in their force compositions. Importantly, against a technological peer like China, adaptation and speed will be what provide the combat advantage. Time is the new offset. Unfortunately, the defense industry is not structured to develop and deliver this kind of force. Slide. We're all familiar with the current force design dynamics. Game-changing technology takes a long time to invent and field. High cost platforms mean we can't buy as many as we need and we have to neck down how many types we have. The resulting small fleets limit our operations both in theater and globally and they make our operations predictable because we have so few and they're so advanced and so expensive. And oh, by the way, we can't replace losses because we don't have hot production lines. We can't afford to lose any and it takes a long time to field anything new. This is a recipe for losing, but it's a structure that the defense department has imposed upon the defense industry because defense leaders persist in believing the myth that we can continue to get smaller, but better. Build. We have to move to a new offset force design and to do this, we have to change our procurement paradigms. We need to have rapid adaptation or in order to be able to create surprise and have that incremental advantage. Furthermore, shifting to rapid adaptation will enable that kind of affordable innovation, diversity and quantity. It's also what will allow us to affordably reach the capacity that we need in order to be able to impose tempo, concentration, and saturation within the battle space. We need to be able to provide resilience through attrition. We have to shift the balance of the force towards offense and lethality, as opposed to treating everything like a, a high value asset that we cannot afford to lose. And finally, the fast fielding will create the surprising force composition and employment that will take the initiative and put it in our court. We have to re, uh, realign our force design attributes in order to be able to achieve this new offset advantage. And that demands that we need to change our procurement paradigms. Slide. So offset theory shaped the defense industry through these diminished competitions. This eye chart on the right represents a 15 year time frame from the infamous Last Supper in 1993 through 2007. You can see how over 30 defense companies consolidated the five primes. Lack of competition didn't just force consolidation. It's decreased design creativity and diversity, engineering experience and expertise, and the manufacturing skills. We're losing our ability to innovate because we're not holding competitions and we do not have robust experimental prototype programs. The government is also an unreliable partner for industry. They have unstable requirements, unreliable funding, rate and production quantities are unpredictable. This breaks trust with industry and disincentivizes them from investing in research and development. And instead of doing new starts, they're incentivized to just simply iterate on extending their franchises. Furthermore, these scarce new starts 
have made each composition, uh, competition existential. This means inevitable protests, delay further work, increase cost of the government, and increase the stability of programs already. I think it's worth emphasizing that Secretary William Perry, who held the Last Supper, later expressed regret. The overhead savings, cost efficiencies, and lower unit and program costs that he expected from the contraction never materialized. And he recognized the adverse consequences on the force, noting that what we got, few large companies, less effective competition. We would have been better off with more smaller firms than with a few large ones. Slide. So without new starts, industry has shifted away from design into integration. Integration in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's crucial to mating both physical and software designs and enables a modernization of existing aircraft. It's how we'll be able to bring elements of adaptation to the battle space. But the issue is that industry's expertise is imbalanced. The force can only be adapted so far through modernization and integration because it's inherently limited by legacy platforms. Integration alone is not enough. We still need design experience and expertise to create new weapon systems to solve the traditional physical problems of the battle space, range, speed, altitude, payload, maneuverability, and endurance, and the physical sensor requirements of the mission, size, weight, power, and cooling. Integration cannot overcome these limitations of legacy platforms. New designs will be needed to be able to provide these attributes. Slide. This chart documents annual fighter production by type. So that's the color of the bars. And on the left axis is a total uh, fighter aircraft production. On the right axis is Air Force fighter inventory. You can see the stark depiction of just how drastic the lack of production opportunities is today. At its highest, the Air Force was procuring 2,700 fighters a year. Total aircraft production for the Air Force was even higher. In 2002, the Air Force procured less than 50 aircraft. The Navy has bought more aircraft than the Air Force has for nearly 20 years. This naturally moves industry business lines away from research and development and production and into sustainment, especially given how unreliable the department has been regarding new starts in production. For example, only 20 of 132 B2s were procured the F-22 was prematurely terminated 187 of the original 750. Sustainment is a far more reliable and lucrative business line for industry and their investors. Slide. These trends are all problematic to the strategic security challenges the nation faces today. To be blunt, the defense industry is not structured, nor is it incentivized to field the force design required by a new offset. It is not structured to deliver capacity or diversity or adaptation at speed. This is not the default of the defense industry. It's the result of the persisting belief that to achieve affordability, we must get smaller by pursuing ever more advanced technology consolidated on ever more sophisticated systems. This decreases competition opportunities and is exacerbated by unstable government behavior. Acquisition reform is unlikely to make any major changes to the structure and incentives of the defense industrial base, nor is acquisition reform likely to accelerate the fielding of new capabilities. The problem here is not policy or regulation. The problem here is paradigm. If we want more competition, we need to hold more competitions. Next. A larger defense base, an expanded defense base, means more competition, increased innovation, and greater design diversity. It provides the nation's strategic depth of capability by cultivating seasoned talent and experience. Periods of rapid technological change lower the barriers to entry, creating the opportunity for smaller, less established companies to mature and grow through robust research and development programs. Providing ongoing experimental prototype programs, like the lightweight fighter competition, which beget the F-16, can provide challenges and repetitions industry needs to generate innovation, experience, and maturity for newer entrants. They can also keep the engineering and manufacturing teams from established companies sharp 
as well as enter new companies. Furthermore, we must avoid future joint aircraft development programs. History shows that these joint aircraft programs decrease design diversity, sub-optimize mission, and narrow the aerospace industrial base through consolidation. Furthermore, analysis has shown that joint aircraft programs do not yield the intended cost savings benefits. An expanded aerospace defense base means more competition, innovation, and design diversity. That's what we need for strategic depth. Next. So the Air Force should continue to help industry rebalance its engineering expertise and facilitate the further development of integration skills. Integration will enable some of the rapid adaptation of both existing weapon systems, mission packages, and operational architectures. By leveraging open mission systems, mission integration tools, containerization, we can allow system engineers to explore how they can quickly integrate and push mission adaptation towards the edge. Furthermore, the Air Force should promote the development, fielding, and use of mission integration tool sets. These tool sets are necessary to enable airmen to rapidly adapt at the battle space edge. Again, the issue isn't about integration, it's about rebalancing our engineering talent. Next. Finally, and this could be the most significant, is that we need to return profit centers back to innovation and production. With current profit centers focused on sustainment, industry is biased towards perpetuating the status quo force design. Shifting the dominant profit centers back into development and production will concurrently shift a focus to the rapid fielding of capability and innovation while loosening the grip of vendor lock. Speed to field can be achieved by reviving competitive experimental prototyping, again, similar to the F-16 lightweight fighter program, which also decreases risk. And the F-117 is another example of this. Focusing programs on a small set of improved attributes enables teams to make better design decisions and cost-effective trade-offs while optimizing and maximizing mission. In addition, we can use mature and common subsystems to achieve affordability where it matters. This will also help manage uh, fleet age. Every fleet type has a different cost sustainment curve and new fighter programs should start every five to seven years to bound the technological ambition, refresh the inventory and increase opportunities for technology insertion while managing the fleet age and creating more budget space for research development and production. Slide. In summary, the nation can no longer rely on pursuing the smaller but better force that takes decades to field. This was not the purpose of the second offset. Instead, we must pursue a rebalanced force design that prioritizes adaptation and speed to provide an asymmetric advantage. This new offset strategy will demand a change to the structure and the business models of the aerospace defense industrial base. We need to enhance competition opportunities, continue to facilitate integration skills while rebalancing uh, engineering, and then also move major profit centers away from sustainment and into research development and production. Okay, well, thanks very much, Heather, for that uh, great um, overview. Um, now let's uh, jump into some of the details. Uh, Tim, uh, a major problem that motivated us to conduct this study is the disconnect between what kind of force is needed in the future and the trends that we've seen in developmental cycles and how industry has been shaped for the last 30 years. Uh, you've spent a lot of time exploring what future warfare is going to look like and uh, what that implies for force design. Uh, could you share with us um, just what the, this future force uh, kind of looks like from your perspective? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and and first of all, let me say thanks uh, for the invitation to uh, sit on the panel with both of you today and and all the audience. So uh, to exactly your point, Dave, uh, this falls under the heading uh, of something that some of the audience may have heard me talk about in the past, uh, maybe too much. Uh, uh, we call it mosaic warfare. And, and it is this notion of let's create a force that is needed for a particular threat, for a particular mission, for a particular target class. Now, what that contrasts, particularly in the context of this question, is, uh, I would say, legacy mindset. 
that, that's driven from everything from the requirements process through the industrial base issues that Heather just described that get into this sort of ladder type tit for tat approach. Now I'm gonna build a certain system. I've got certain classes of things that I wanna have. Um, and if the bad guy goes and produces something that is better, well, by golly, I'm gonna do the same thing, but just improve my performance and address those threats. That's our legacy way of doing things. And it worked during the Cold War when the adversary and the problem set was very well-defined and focused. And, and frankly, that adversary was a, was a very lethargic communist bureaucracy uh, that didn't move very fast. Uh, we are now facing a very different complex world where both the complexity of the threat space and the kinds of missions that, that the DOD is called to do combined with the pace at which adversaries are doing their own modernization. Uh, you know, we see uh, countries like China particularly investing a lot of money in their modernization. And frankly, they're doing it smartly. And a lot of this is also enabled by the very broad global availability of advanced technology. You know, core technologies aren't a barrier to this anymore. So we're seeing a pace of adaptation of the threat, but our legacy tit for tat approach can't keep up with the pace of that modernizing threat. So, so we're pushing this notion of mosaic warfare that I also call monolith busting. You know, the idea, the idea of uh, the mosaic analogy is that instead of saying, I want everything to be very carefully engineered on one specific design, that I wanna say what, what tiles, if I like, do I have available and, and bring the best tiles to the fight that I need or, or the mosaic analogy to the work of art. Um, the, the, where the monolith busting comes in, very relevant again to your topic here. Uh, first of all, we wanna bust up monolithic platforms. And, and we don't want to say, hey, Warfighter, you are limited to the capabilities that sit on one platform. That may not be the best geometry for targeting with the sensor you have, or maybe you don't have the best weapon, but right now, all of that kill chain is integrated into one platform. So the first monolith busting is bust up the platform to create options for the warfighter to say, give me the best sensor, give me the best weapon in the battle space, irrespective of what platforms they're locked to. But the second, and, and, and I, would, I should say, there's a lot of talk about JADC2 and ABMS and things like that around the department right now. I, I think the department's getting there. It's the system of systems mindset that gets away from monolithic platforms to thinking kill chains. The second monolith busting though, that we're really pushing on is the notion of not getting sucked into monolithic architectures. Uh, Heather already alluded to the notion of integration uh, as a key enabler. Uh, and I think we'll talk more about the time dimension of this as well. But there's a real danger that we say, hey, we've got these very limited number, very limited diversity of monolithic platforms. Let's just sort of rearrange the deck chairs a little bit into new architectures. And that is equally dangerous uh, if not, frankly, more so. And one of the things we are looking a lot at. Well, thanks for that. Heather, um, Tim just described a future force that uh, has a potential for many different kinds of aircraft. Um, but we've seen that sensors, software, and, and processing are really what delivers new advanced capabilities to the warfighter. Um, aircraft development and production seems almost backwards uh, industrial age, not information age. Um, can you explain um, why our report focused on uh, aircraft production? Yeah, so, so we don't argue that sensor software and processing isn't crucial to advancing capability. But we have to remember that aircraft are what bring these capabilities to the battle space. And aircraft are what solve the very real physical problems of geography, threat, and operational execution. So we often think of these aerodynamic attributes as range, endurance, and payload, and speed, and maneuverability itself. But we focus on aircraft production in part, not only because the Air Force doesn't have the optimal force structure for the geophysical battle space that it faces, but uh, you know, in, in real, you know, capacity, stealth, payload, and range are particular shortfalls that the Air Force faces in its current force design. But we also have to realize that aircraft design constrains the kinds of software processing and systems that an airplane can host. Aircraft are cyber physical platforms, and their physical design is what enables 
the swap C of the sensors and avionics and software, right? Size, weight, power, and cooling. If the aircraft, for example, cannot cool its avionics or generate sufficient electrical power for its systems, then the physical design is inherently limited and you can't bring that capability to bear. So while integration and open mission systems may increase the interoperability of the software packages, software to software, it can't solve the physical host problem. So we need to be able to field new aircraft to solve both the geophysical challenges of the battle space and the swap C challenges of new capabilities. And we have to be able to do that at speed. Uh, Tim, I'd like to pick up on a theme that you uh, touched upon in your first comment, and that's of a, a system or uh, a platform diversity and complexity. Uh, we've seen distinct trends away from diversity in the Forks mix. For example, the Air Force just announced that it's moving from seven to uh, five fighter types, actually four plus one, because uh, can't seem to get rid of the A-10. Um, whether the logistics, sustainment, maintenance, training, or basing, the department has sought to streamline um, all that through joint programs or consolidating mission sets in order to achieve cost efficiencies, perhaps at the exclusion of warfighting effectiveness. Could you talk to us a bit about why you think diversity is so important in a, a future force design? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And I think there's an offensive and I'll, I'll call it essentially a defensive aspect of that. You know, the, the, people think a lot of this diversity in terms of complexity. You know, if, if we've got more options, back to my monolith busting theme, we can put things together different ways and tailor how we put them together to, to what's actually needed at the time of need. That imposes a tremendous amount of uncertainty and complexity upon the bad guy. Uh, and, and that becomes a key offensive capability in and of itself, this notion of optionality. Um, I, I would say also there is a certain efficiency associated with it. And your, your, your question sort of alludes to this. So, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the notion of, of, uh, uh, first of all, the issue of resilience. Uh, this is sort of a defensive posture kind of thing. When we look at the threats to our own systems, you know, we try to forecast, if, if we think we're gonna have a platform around for 20, 30, 40, 80 years, <laughs> uh, you, you know, th there's a forecast, attempt to forecast, you know, what, what could we be using this for? What could be the threats? And then, and then try to provision for every single one of those threats. And, and guess what? That starts becoming a complexity imposed upon ourselves. You know, th this, this need to try to overcome every possible bad thing that can happen causes us to over-engineer things, over-design things, add new functions that we may not actually use much, if at all, for this over-provisioning. And guess what? We're still probably going to be wrong because no one has that crystal ball that can look out, you know, 30 plus years. So, so the notion of being able to get to um, what the problem is at hand uh, is in itself a form of resilience, but it's also a form of efficiency. I can design to the problem when that sight picture is much more crystal clear in front of me. The other thing it allows me to do, uh, if I can, I think we'll talk more about this in the discussion, if I can manage all of those illities that you described, which frankly are what scare people with a diverse force mix. But if I just look at it operationally, if I have that diverse force mix, I can allow things to be hyper-specialized. You know, so if, if I am looking at an NGAD kind of capability that's driven by the pacing threat of an A2AD environment, I can focus on building a platform that can go in and fight that A2AD fight, but not have to worry about being a general purpose platform to also handle close air support and, and routine missions in a permissive environment that might drive you know, quantity and, and mass in a lot of cases. And frankly, even in a peer fight, you can imagine, you know, a limited number of things that might be able to go kick in the door and, and things that aren't necessarily as sophisticated that can still deliver mass. You know, so I don't know. I'm not a warfighter. I don't know what that right mix is. But you can imagine if I have a diverse force, I can have lots of pieces, you know, that are focused, hyper focused on specific functions, specific skills, if you like. And that, in principle, allows me to make those individual platforms and, and mission systems uh, in and of themselves, simpler and therefore cheaper, and then 
hopefully drive a virtuous cycle of greater numbers. Um, well, thanks for that. Bit of a follow-up. So where does time fit into this future force? We've all heard the chief uh, tell us about uh, accelerate change or lose. Um, what does that mean to you and why does time matter? Uh, uh, you know, how do we think of time, particularly within the context of uh, the aerospace industry? Yeah, time is absolutely critical. So, you know, the, and in fact, I think you're going to be either just had or are going to have uh, the new Air Force Chief Scientist, Victoria Coleman, on. And uh, when I worked with uh, Victoria when she was my boss here at DARPA, uh, she used the term time compression. And, and so that resonates very much with this time as an offset theme. It really gets down to two factors. You know, one is, and I think of them as two scales. Uh, one is that acquisition time scale. You know, can we field new systems uh, faster than the, the bad guys are fielding systems, which one allows us again to address dilemmas they throw at us and throw more dilemmas at them. So that's one time cycle. But there's also another time cycle that's really important, and that's the operational time cycle, or the, we call it the mission planning time cycle. And one of the things we've seen with a lot of the tools we've been building under Mosaic Warfare uh, is that we can certainly, we're not going to go build a new platform in a day. Okay, that, that's, that's crazy. There's no magic 3D printer that, that's going to spit out a, a jet fighter in a day. However, we can reconfigure what the actual mission capability is. You know, this is where the software piece does become very important. You know, whether that's uh, reconfiguring the software on a particular platform, say to add a new sensing capability, uh, or configuring at an architectural level, you know, the, the, the broader distributed kill chains and things of that nature. What we have seen is if you can truly reconfigure that force capability at a mission relevant timeline, we have seen creation of kill chains in as short as 45 minutes with a tool we have called Stitches. Now the warfighter can be hyper-selective. You know, I've got 500 different functions in a, in a C2 system or on a platform someplace. I only need 10 for this immediate fight in, in front of me. Let me just focus on those 10, get to the fight against that particular problem at hand. So there's a virtue that comes from time. Yes, it allows us to stay ahead. Yes, it allows us to impose complexity. It stays inside that OODA loop, but it also gives us a virtuous feedback cycle of increasing our options. Yeah, I know that's very good, Tim. It also uh, takes us into a, another completely separate mission area, and that's the timeliness of information delivery, which then gets us into um, our space-based architectures which for years um, have been extraordinarily difficult uh, to deliver information in a timely fashion. And one would hope with the stand up of the Space Force and Space Command and the integration of those former monolithic organizations that only focus on uh, one thing, uh, we, could, we, we could pull that challenge in and solving it into, into this one too, but that's another subject area. Um, Heather, our reports suggest maintaining multiple hot production lines um, for aircraft. Uh, and this seems to go against all accepted wisdom for the last 30 years. Um, could you expand a little bit on uh, why we selected that uh, and made that recommendation? Be blunt, it's the only viable solution for the Air Force, the defense aerospace industry and our national security. The only way to bring down the high sustainment costs of the Lexi fleet is to replace them. And the only way to begin transforming our force design is through production. So the best way to make that production affordable is through competition. And the best way to achieve diversity is through the different design approaches of different companies. And the only way to do all of this, all of this at speed is through multiple production lines. So as we found in the paper, lack of competition is what has shaped the defense industry today where we have just a handful of consolidated companies who focus on more on integration and primarily on sustainment as their profit centers. So this structure can't deliver the force design of the future. And the answer is not uh, more acquisition reform as we found. So increased opportunities through multiple hot production lines is the best way to reverse those trends and be able to do that at speed in a way that opens up that sustainment budget space again towards uh, production and, and, and development. Um, very good. It's a big order, but um, I hope this uh, 
that the leadership uh, in the Air Force reads this and takes it uh, to heart. I think it does, you know, some of the words that uh, the Chief of Staff has uh, used over the last couple of weeks, um, this fits pretty well into um, what his objectives are. The challenge is going to be how to actualize it with a, as you've talked about, um, a defense industry and a Department of Defense that are really stuck in one approach to doing business, but they there are clearly folks that want to change. Um, Tim, one more to you before we go to our audience. Um, in, in order to infuse new energy in the aerospace industry, our report recommends accelerating development and fielding cycles by reviving competitive experimental prototyping. Um, as the director of DARPA's Strategic Technologies Office, you've got a lot of experience in development and prototyping. So what insights do you have for how the Air Force can structure uh, competitive uh, prototyping programs to accelerate innovation? Yeah, so that that's key to all of this, and and there's a there's a technical answer and an institutional answer. Uh, on on the technical side of things, um, it, it's going to sound kind of funny, but you, you need technology to adopt technology. Uh, there there are a lot of the problem sets, whether it is rapid design, uh, you know, like you've heard within the Air Force, a lot of discussion about digital engineering and things of that nature, accelerating design. Uh, there's there's technology, you know, one of the big, you alluded to uh, the illity issue. You know, if if we take a legacy uh, manufacturing technology approach or logistics approach, or for that matter, training approach, every single one of the, call it the life cycle chains, becomes a monolith. You know, and, and we need to bust those monoliths as well. <clears throat> and, and that's how we afford uh, and manage our own complexity of a very diverse force mix. So we need technology to enable the notion of, of rapid, rapid changes, rapid prototypes, uh, you know, rapid spin-ons of new technology. There's another really critical factor, though, which, which is this compelling institutional need. Uh, and, and Heather alluded to it a little bit in her briefing. Uh, it really comes out loud and clear for folks that read the full report. This recapitalization uh, cliff that the Department of Defense faces, it's a huge issue in aircraft. Uh, it's frankly pretty much across the entire DOD, and, and it's horrifying. It absolutely is horrifying. And so one of the things that we're taking a look at, uh, and, and as a technologist and someone who's worked in advanced technology most of my career, I will be the first to say, if DARPA you know, shows you a phase one PowerPoint deck from one of our programs, you should not go make a major acquisition decision based upon that stack of PowerPoint. You know, if some of our stuff doesn't fail, we're not trying hard enough. Um, and, and we don't want to gap an, a, a critical mission capability, you know, betting on some of the advanced technology working. But here's the frustrating thing. The flip side of that, is our legacy acquisition model says, okay, great. We're gonna go do an AOA and then have a tech freeze that's years before they even let the competition for the contract, okay? So now if I'm a program office, I am stuck with two binary, very bad all-in bets. I either assume there's going to be some kind of <clears throat> advanced technology that works and bet on that. And we've seen a lot of very failed programs, you know, that, that had cost overrun after cost overrun because the tech never matured. Or we just say, hey, we're going to throw our hands up, just buy what we've already got and do more of that. And then we lock ourselves into the current design for another few decades. Neither of those are a very palatable solution. So yes, a lot of it is about prototyping and doing advanced prototyping, but we also need to start structuring recapitalization programs that create for on-ramps and off-ramps. You know, so if we have a gapped capability, you know, we can go in and say, look, we've got to do something to avoid falling into that gap, but maybe structure the con competition so that we'll just buy a couple more tail numbers and then leave room that as these prototypes and other alternatives percolate, if one of them actually comes to fruition, then there's an on-ramp where it can start, you know, uh, augmenting uh, uh, this, core capability. Well, thanks very much for that, uh, Tim. There's really so much more to discuss, 
but what I'd like to do is move to our audience uh, questions. So, Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Um, Heather, thanks for the uh, great uh, presentation, super work. And uh, on behalf of the Mitchell Institute uh, and all of AFA, we wish you all the very best of uh, uh, as you work to inform the best choices uh, for the nation involving our aerospace industry. So now let's open a session to questions from the audience. I think most of you here know the routine. Uh, you're, feel free to direct your questions to one or more of our panelists. You can use the Q&A function or raise hand. So let's jump right into it with uh, Steve Trimble. Yes, can you hear me? Good, good. Um, so thank you so much for this. It's a very interesting conversation. And the, the, you know, the thing I wanted to drill down on was this idea that, you know, part, you know, the, the, the recommendation that we have to start replacing these aircraft and to move the, uh, the profit incentive to production instead of sustainment. Uh, just like in digital century series, uh, the idea was to get the aircraft out, I think, in 16 year intervals before they get to PDM. However, I mean, we, we see that there's a lot of resistance in the industrial base and in Congress uh, and other places uh, to, to doing that uh, every time it comes up. Um, and so without that, I mean, you're sort of, you, you know, you, if you're, you know, you're sort of basing the, the strategy on, on this assumption that it will, those, even if everything works out, that those aircraft will be allowed to be retired. And it seems so hard to get that done sometimes. So it, do you, are there any mechanisms that you see out there, uh, policy, legal, regulatory, or whatever it is, to to enable that process, uh, make it more smooth, uh, to, you know, uh, to carry out these recommendations? So, Steve, I'll I'll jump in here first. Um, the The issue that you brought up regarding congressional resistance to divesting aircraft, I think in part has to do with obviously a cult of personality around the A-10 to be frank, um, but also then um, that the, the, the F-35 at that point in time, and even today is not yet fielded in numbers and hasn't developed sort of the operational reputation needed to be able to still the, you know, change the affiliation of affection um, from the A-10 to the F-35. But broad, more broadly speaking, I think the resistance to additional aircraft divestitures is that if you divest aircraft, unless you ramp up F-35, there really is no other option but to just totally lose force structure. And because the Air Force is already too small, Congress rightly is obstructing the Air Force's uh, you know, desire to reduce force structure. Um, so it, it, we're not saying that this is an easy problem to solve. If it was easy, we wouldn't be in this position uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But what, the, what needs to begin happening is developing multiple production lines or multiple um, prototypes so that we can start having optionality uh, within the industry uh, in order to be able to begin divesting. So, so at a pragmatic level, we understand if you get rid of force structure, you're probably never going to get that back. And it'll be too difficult to be able to regenerate that industrial base and that force when you actually need it. I've said this, uh, I think we've had a couple conversations about strategic um, surprise. It, with a hot production line, it takes a minimum of three years to build an aircraft that's already a program of record, already has an established supply line. So from the time that you, you get the on spigot to the time that it shows up in the field is three years, which means if anything happens within that three years, we're already too late. There's nothing that we can do to pivot and turn um, in that way. So that's a reason why having those multiple production lines is crucial. And one of the reasons why I think that, that, that the Air Force is being obstructed from divesting aircraft. Okay, here's one that's uh, a bit related um, from the uh, Q&A segment. It's from uh, Matt Beverly. Uh, Matt says, absolutely agree with the thesis. However, Congress is very vested in the current defense industrial base structure. Um, how do you convince Congress this uh, necessary uh, defense industrial base change does not threaten their constituents? So I, I'd like to jump on that because I was going to, you know, comment a little bit related to, to Steve's question as well. Um, I'll, I'll make two points, you know, one that is actually toward the dib itself. And then the other is toward this 
questions specifically about Congress, because quite frankly, if if the Dib is on board, Congress will get on board. Uh, you know, there's a very tight connection there. Um, so I think part of it comes down to creating reason for trust. You know, they have folks like us at a place like DARPA or a think tank like Mitchell who say, yeah, this is a great idea. But if there isn't some demand signal from the actual customers that they're willing to go buy this way, then then the dib is really out on a limb if they try to you know look at different business models this way. You know, case in point, the, the rapid uh, procurement, uh, you know, there are virtuous cycles that come from that rapid procurement. You can smooth out uh, operations uh, and, and utilization of capital if you're on the operations side of a company. If you're on the finance side of the company, that's one that always gets kind of antsy because it's great having you know, a 25-year contract that you can forecast revenues and profits. But as Heather pointed out, we've got these bet the company kinds of disruptions that occur. Wouldn't it be great for, as a finance perspective if you knew there was going to be a steady stream of competitions and that on average, you were probably going to win a certain amount. A little more uncertainty, but arguably less potentially disruptive. That makes for a more resilient dip. You know, but again, the customer has to show willingness and provide that demand signal that, yay, verily, they are willing to, to, to buy this way. Then the other factor, besides the dib being on board and, and telling you know the the you know the the senators and congressmen of their districts that they like this model, the other big thing is particularly on the appropriator side, uh, they demand for good reason uh, accountability. Uh, you, you know, so we can't just say yeah, give us a few billion dollars and trust us, we're going to go do good things. And and I think we've seen that with some of the challenges around the early use of 804 authority. Uh, the, the, for those of you who aren't aware, this is the, you know, the ability to go do uh, mid-scale innovative acquisition models. Um, it's, you know, they understand the need to move fast, but if we're moving fast at large scales, they need some way of having a forecast of, yeah, this is why we're buying this diverse mix. And, and this is how we're going to create some level of metrics uh, that this is the right diverse mix, or there's value in this diverse mix, and, and the taxpayers getting value for their dollar. And and one of the crazier things we're thinking about at DARPA is actually using things like AI tools and and game theory to create a model for how do you put a mission value against something without dictating here are the specific KPPs and here are the specific requirements, which lead us back to the monolithic approach. You know, so that's a DARPA thing, but yeah, I think with with demand signal, trust, and in some way to create metrics and measure value, I think we can get there. Um, very good. Uh, thanks for that. Um, here's a here's a related one um, from uh, Doug Berkey. Heather, what approach do you recommend? Blow up the current acquisition plan now and move to the new model as soon as possible or get the Air Force healthy with current builds and then roll these new concepts concepts as a subsequent step? Well, I'm not really sure the Air Force has a real acquisition plan right now. Um, you know, so I'll make a, a, a joke about that. But, it, you know, we cannot afford to break the industrial base that we have. That is the crown jewel of, of our intellectual capital, the engineering talent that we have. And we have to remember, that the, the defense industrial base is simply responding to the behavior of the government. So really my, my answer to this would be a parallel approach, right? The only new production that we have right now is really F-35. Um, you could talk about the F-15EX, which I think of more as an experimental prototype program because it's really not bringing anything new to the force design. It's really playing around with how we do this integration and modular systems uh, in internally. And that will have value as we move towards a future force. But that, that platform is not relevant uh, in any kind of peer competition. So really the only answer to begin solving the challenges of the small and, and you know the legacy fleet and the high sustainment costs of those fleet is to rapidly ramp up F-35 production. Now, this is gonna sound radical, but there's, no, there's nothing that says we have to keep 
the early model F-35s. We could replace early model F-35s. There's nothing that says that we have to keep F-35s for 70 or 100 years. As the next new platforms come on board, that provides us the optionality to make smart decisions and smart choices. And as we've, you know, the um, CBO has done analysis that says, hey, look, about 15 years is when you begin to see those cost curves begin to go back up. And so that's what we need to plan to is managing fleet age by replacing with new aircraft designs and new types. And so I really think that it's a, the, the answer is, is both. Continue to ramp up F-35 so you can take older platforms out, but it doesn't mean that we have to go to a homogenous and we should not go to a homogenous force structure. We need to begin introducing diversity by bringing in new designs and new platforms. Uh, thanks for that. Um... Here's one from uh, Chris uh, Franklin um, in Skunk Works by Ben Rich. He said that only something like 40% of the cost of developing a new aircraft was for the actual aircraft. The other 60% was incurred by government oversight and procurement challenges caused by the bureaucracy. Uh, do you all believe that still uh, holds true today? I, I, th I think it's actually worse than that. It's, it's probably something like 80, 20 or bigger. Uh, but but here's, here's the thing, and, and it ties back to this notion of, of diversity and greater numbers. Uh, I actually did uh, I, uh, my own study on this, uh, working as a consultant, looking at uh, the growing trend in proliferated LEO from a, from a space perspective. If we only have a very limited number of things, and those are super high performance highly capable things where we've emphasized the performance of those systems. Yeah, we've got to have a lot of oversight. You know, that's everything from the requirements process that says, hey, if I'm going to be stuck with this for 30 years, I better have the right capabilities. When I build it, it better, by golly, deliver what it's supposed to do and hit the performance it's supposed to do. And I got to layer on all those contingencies. That's the mindset. That's, that's a, the reality. That, that drives the, the need for oversight. But here's the thing. If I flip that equation and I say, now I've got this very diverse mix of things and very large numbers, from a mission reliability, a mission resilience perspective, I can actually afford to lose some of those things. And, and, and obviously, if they're, if they're manned platforms, we don't want to lose human beings along with that. But especially with the, you know, the rise of autonomous systems, you know, we ought to have an entirely different mindset of how we design and procure autonomous systems that is then accelerated and, and lightened, if you like, even further, if I don't have huge all-in regrets every time I do a competition in a new procurement. If I do those kinds of things, we should, in fact, not we just should, we have to accept more risk. You know, we have to have the risk that's balanced against the marginal cost of individual platforms, and against the overall uh, you know, impact of the mission. And, and if we get that risk right, we should in principle be able to reduce a lot of that overhead and, the, and that you know, looking over industry shoulders there. Uh, you know, we don't have time to go into some of the other procurement models today, but I think there are also some interesting procurement models that could get around that oversight and risk structure as well by shifting who owns the risk and where the actual accountability is. So maybe we'll save that for a discussion at a later time. And I'm just going to add on quickly to what Tim just said, um, is that if you begin to shift, I think, some of the, the, the procurement paradigms and how, you, how we look to create the new force structure, that will drive adaptations within the bureaucracy. So um, I think that, that there are some unique opportunities there. For example, with um, autonomous systems, we will need to change how we do um, uh, testing and, and validation of those systems because they're autonomous. So shifting the, shifting the paradigm to to more systems, to diverse systems, where we can accept a little bit more risk because better, faster is better than perfect. Um, we'll see some changes within the bureaucracy as it adapts to the needs of the service. But because this is so important, I'll put stomp that even a little bit further. The, the, the real fundamental risk, I think, is the cultural and, and, and inertia around this because the opposite of what Heather said is also true. If we don't change the oversight models, if we don't adapt the risk management models to these different kinds of systems and, and different way of building the force, we'll never get there, you know, because then we'll be back to every single 
competition and every single platform effectively being its own monolith. And now we have this whole stack of monoliths and that truly will bust the budget. You know, so, so the oversight itself will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, well, that's a great way to wrap this up. Everybody, we've uh, come to the end of uh, the rollout of our policy paper, uh, Building an Agile Force. And uh, I'd really like to give a big thanks to uh, both uh, Heather Penny and uh, Tim Grayson. Thanks for sharing your insights uh, into this uh, absolutely critical issue. It's at the forefront of uh, what's going on uh, and what's driving the Air Force, quite frankly, today. So from all of us at Mitchell Institute, uh, to all of you, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Take care. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.